Father, as we come together tonight, I'm so thankful for the men and women in this room tonight. I'm so thankful, Lord, that for, for these weeks, they have been so faithful to come and, and to, to sit under the teaching of God's word and uh, sometimes to listen to my stumbling and bumbling and, and Lord, to, to walk away with some truths that they can um, really hone in on and, and draw strength from in the days and weeks to come. Well, we live in, in a world that it, it, it's totally uh, looking like what Jesus described in Matthew chapter 24 about the last days. All, all those signs that Jesus talked about, Father, seem to be uh, coalescing together in, in our day. Uh, Father, we, we, we pray that you would allow the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and discernment tonight. I ask you for the Holy Spirit's help in teaching. And I pray that in every way, the Lord Jesus will be honored and glorified. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, thinking about what's happening in the world today, uh, Chimney Rock Elementary School. Have you read about that? They're having an after-school Satan club beginning in January. Now, I just don't understand that. I, I don't understand parents even putting up with that for one minute. And, and then I, I read about a, a child that failed a test because this child said that, that men can't get pregnant. Now, I would have failed that test too because men cannot get pregnant. And it's just a, a sign, a symbol of what's happening in our world. It's, it's going haywire. But I think one thing we've got to remember is this. Our Lord has promised us he's coming. He's promised us that he is going to inaugurate an eternal kingdom of righteousness. He's going to right every wrong. He's going to heal every hurt. He's coming, and it, that's going to happen. And we can, we, can, we can go to the bank with those truths. So let's just look at the beginning here. The battle of Gog and Magog described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, without a doubt, is some of the most controversial uh, prophetic passages in the Bible. People are all over the place when it comes to their interpretation of these two chapters. Some approach these chapters as non-literal. It's symbolic to them, a figurative meaning. Others approach these chapters as having a literal fulfillment, a literal invasion of the land of Israel in the last days, a literal um, move by God to supernaturally protect his covenant people, to destroy the invading army. And there's all kind of disagreements about the participants, the location, timing, and all that kind of stuff. But last week, we moved to the deep end of the prophetic pool as we considered the war of Gog and Magog. Now, if you remember, Gog refers to a ruler, a czar, a leader, okay? It doesn't refer to a place or a nation. It refers to a ruler, czar, or leader. Magog, as we, we looked last week, I believe refers to Russia, Russia. The Bible predicts an end-time alliance by the big three, I think they're the big three, Russia, Turkey, and Iran. And there will be some other countries joining them in this evil coalition that will come against Israel in the last days, thinking that they are going to absolutely swamp them and take their loot and take their resources 
and, and, and destroy the nation of Israel. You, you know, it's interesting that when Hamas terrorists did their dastardly deed there on October the 7th, in the streets of major Palestinian cities and in major uh, Arab cities, there were parades and there was celebrations about what had happened to the Jewish people. And, and that's the reality of what we face today. And um, we saw in last week's study that God will not allow this invading force to prevail, but will supernaturally wipe them out on the mountains of Israel. And this turn of events, without a doubt, will leave the unbelieving world gasping for answers, looking for answers. Um, it, it will, the Bible says, be an event that God will use to make his name known in the last days. Now, remember, one thing we've seen, we, we've gone over and over, over again in the book of Ezekiel, as we've gone through this study, is that there's a recurring um, emphasis upon the fact that God is going to make his name great. God is going to display his glory so that the nations will know that there is one true God. Now, in Hebrew literature, it's common to give an account and then to repeat it for emphasis sake and to add additional details. That's common in Hebrew. In Ezekiel 39, 1 to 8, it is a summary of what was described in Ezekiel 38, practically. And in, in, for instance, in chapter 38, there's a concentration on the danger this evil coalition presents to the nation of Israel. In chapter 38, there's a concentration on the defeat of Gog the ruler of this coalition. In chapter 39, there's a concentration on the disposal of Gog and the army that is with him. In chapter 39, there's a concentration on the deliverance of God's people. So we're going to see some new stuff in chapter 39, and there will be a rehashing of some of the stuff we saw in chapter 38. Now, remember this, in the Bible, whether it's Hebrew literature or Greek literature, in the Bible, when there is a repetition, it's there for emphasis sake, okay? Let's look at Ezekiel 39, 1 to 6. And as, as I read this, I want you to look at the verbs. Look at the verbs in these six verses. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog. Now, when the Bible says, when God says to Ezekiel, prophesy against Gog, that means that Gog, this ruler of this evil coalition, is in deep trouble. Because when God is against you, it's not going to turn out good for you, right? Right? And so the Bible says, and you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, and God tells him exactly what to prophesy. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around, drive you on, take you up from the remotest parts of the north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. I will strike your bow from, from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field, and you will fall on the open field, for it is I who has spoken, declares the Lord. And I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety. And look at this now. 
And they will know, and they will know that I am the Lord. Now, I, I just underlined some of these key verbs here in verses one to six. God says, I will turn you around. God says, I will drive you on. I will take you up. I will bring you against the mountains of Israel. Now, now what does that tell us? God is driving this whole scenario. God is going to take this, these nations that have rejected Christ and he's going to bring them against his covenant people, Israel. And God is the driving force behind all that's happening here in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the war of Gog and Magog. Look at verse three, I will strike your bow from your left hand. God says, I'm going to knock your bow out of your left hand. And I'm going to dash down your arrows from your right hand. And then verse four, I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. Now these verbs are very important. In fact, when you study the Bible, really zero in on verbs. Verbs are very important. Okay. So here we see in these first six verses, the sovereignty of God. God is in control. God is doing exactly what needs to be done so that he will be glorified and the nations of the world will know that he is God. He's the Lord. Now, some of what we see here is similar to the events of Armageddon described in Revelation chapter 19, verse 17 and 18. Take your Bible, flip over to Revelation 19 just a moment. Look at verse 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may, may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now there's, there's some similarities, but there are some major differences between the, the battle of Armageddon and the war of Gog and Magog. The most notable is that the war of Gog and Magog will come at a time when Israel is living in peace and security. We, we saw that in the previous chapter. So this certainly will not be the case at the end of the tribulation as the inhabitants of Israel has to have to flee for their lives at the midpoint of the tribulation. Now, look at verse six. This verse, remember I told you there's some repetition here in chapter 39, but there's also some new information. Now here's some new information. We don't see this in chapter 38, but we do see it in chapter 39. Look at verse six. And I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. Now, the Bible says here that God is going to send fire upon Russia and the coastlands. Now, let's piece together the scenario here. This massive army we learn from chapter 38, covers the mountains of Israel and they bear down on the people of God, okay, the, 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 the Israelites. God sends an earthquake. Remember, we read that in chapter 38. God sends a gigantic earthquake and it wipes out a large segment of Gog's army. And then once that happens, chaos breaks out within the ranks of the remaining army and they begin to kill each other. 
Now, that, that's exactly what happened with the, the war that Jehoshaphat waged against the, the, the armies of the enemy. That's what they did. They, 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 they were confused and they began fighting each other and they killed each other. And remember, Jehoshaphat sent the, the choir out in front of the army. And when they got to the top of the hill, they looked, all these dead bodies were down here and they plundered the enemies of God. And this is basically what we're going to see right here. Now, next, fire and hail are poured out on what remains of the invading army. Now, this is a picture. What you have here is a picture of total devastation of a vastly superior army that attacked a noticeably inferior nation. Surely, anyone in their right mind would assume that these events would have the supernatural fingerprints of God all over them. Now, can you imagine the cockiness of Gog and his army? They outnumber the Jewish people an amazing amount. And, and, and they're confident. They, they think it's a slam dunk. That is until God intervenes, right? And God supernaturally intervened. Now, the Bible says that, that nobody stands with Israel. Nobody's with Israel. Nobody's there to help them. It's just Israel. And I'm telling you, you look at what's happening today. It's getting more and more like that, okay? People are getting cold feet when it comes to supporting Israel. And that's going to happen. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that we're on the verge of the war of Gog and Magog. I can't make that call. But I'm telling you, what we're seeing is... is uh, uh, symbolic of what's going to happen when this war breaks out for real. It, it amazes me how the UN can not condemn Hamas for their atrocities, but they can vote overwhelmingly to demand that Israel enter into a ceasefire. It just makes no sense to me. So, the end of verse 6 again, I, I just, I can't get over this. And they will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Now, you're going to see this as we work our way through this chapter. This is not the only time you're going to see it. Look at verse 7 and 8. My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. That's the first time in these chapters that God talks about making his name known to the covenant people of Israel. That's the first time. He's been talking about making his name known to the nations, to the world, but here he insinuates that he's going to make his holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and we'll see this again later on in the chapter. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. There it is again. The nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming. It shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. God supernaturally confirms that what, I, what Ezekiel is prophesying here is literally going to happen. It's not figurative, it's not symbolic, it is going to happen. Now, first, you notice that he wants the nations of the world to know that he is Lord, that he is Lord. And second, he wants Israel to honor his holy name, and he's going to make himself known to the people of Israel. I'm going to be honest with you. The people of Israel today are, 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 are practical atheists. They are. They're practical atheists. But the day is coming when God is going to open their eyes, 
They're, they're, by the way, the New Testament says there's a partial hardening that God himself has placed over the hearts of the Jewish people until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, when the reality of this invasion and God's supernatural del deliverance is witnessed, it will jolt Israel out of its spiritual slumber. Though Israel was gathered to the land and lived in relative safety and security, a true relationship with Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, had not been established. But it will be restored, and it'll be after this battle. Now, they will know once and for all, the Jewish people will know once and for all that they are the Lord's people. They're the covenant people of God. And they need to repent. They need to uphold his name. And they need to have faith in God once again. You know, as you study the Old Testament, and as you look at the idolatry that characterized the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, as you look at their blatant rebellion against God, thumbing their, their nose at God, choosing to uh, ignore the moral law of God and do whatever they thought was right, almost like the book of Judges all throughout their history, the, the time is coming when this, prof this prophecy that Ezekiel has recorded for us will come about and revival will come to the nation of Israel, genuine Holy Spirit sent revival and renewal. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them. The weapons of who? The weapons of Gog and his army, his coalition that has come against the nation of Israel. They'll make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears. And look at this, look at this. You, you want to know how massive this army is? You want to know how, how powerful this army was? Look at this. And for seven years, they will make fires of the weapons of the enemy. Seven years. Now you're talking about a lot of weapons. You're talking about a massive, devastating army. Notice verse 10. They will not take wood from the field or gather firewood from the forest, for they will make fires with the weapons. And they will take, I, I love this statement right here. Look at this. And they will take the spoil of those who despoiled them and seize the plunder of those who plundered them declares the Lord God. There's going to be a great reversal that takes place. The law of sowing and reaping is a legitimate law. It, it is just as real and significant and solid as the law of gravity. If I, if I come to the edge of this stage and if I were to step off this stage, I promise you, I'm not going to levitate I'm going to go down. I'm not, I'm not going to go up. I'm going down. Why? Because of gravity, the law of gravity. I, I can't undo the law of gravity, and nobody can undo the law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. Now, that's true for Gog and his army, but I'm going to tell you, that's true for every person in this room. That's, that's true for every person in America. That's true for the person who has the insane idea that a man can get pregnant. That's true for the person who says, well, we need to start a Satan after school Satan club at Chimney Rock Elementary School. You reap what you sow. And I'll tell you, it's coming. Now, sometimes reaping happens immediately. Sometimes it is delayed but it always happens. You reap what you sow. Now, 
we see here the kind of weapons that are described. Shields, bucklers, bows, arrows, spears, etc. And in chapter 38, verse 4, it also spoke about horses. And we need to ask ourselves, is this figurative? Is this symbolic? Or is this literal? Now, here's what I believe. And Warren Wiersbe said this too. He suggested that Ezekiel used language that people could understand. How in the world could Ezekiel describe a tank? How could he describe a, a rifle? He had to describe weapons that people could understand in his day. Now, Ezekiel 39, verses 11 to 16. On that day, now remember what's happened. Gog and his army has come against Israel. They're at the mountains of Israel. God has supernaturally intervened. God has sent this great earthquake. God has rained down uh, brimstone and fire and hail and, and, and that they've turned on each other. They, they've killed each other and bodies are strewn everywhere. Everywhere you look, they're bought dead bodies. Now look at this. On that day, I will give Gog a burial ground there in Israel. The valley of those who pass by east of the sea. And it will block off those who would pass by. So there's going to be so many dead people that you can't even get through the valley there. So they will bury Gog there with all his horde, and they will call it the Valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, now look at this, for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. So, So for seven years, they burn the weapons. They make fires with the weapons. For seven months, all the house of Israel will be, will be burying the enemy who have died there in Israel. I was watching a, a news report the other day, and they're talking about Gaza and how the IDF is going to have to go in, and they're going to have to find the Jewish bodies, the bodies of dead Jews, and give them a proper burial. And the, the newscaster said, that's a part of the Jewish belief system. They've got to take care of the bodies. And that's what we see right here. The Bible says, for seven months, they'll be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Even all the people of the land will bury them. Not, not just the army not just the designated barriers, all the people of, of the land of Israel will have to participate in it because it's such a massive amount of dead people laying on the ground. Even all the people of the land will bury them and it, it will be to their renown on the day that I glorify myself. I said, I'm going to glorify myself. But see, the nation of Israel knows that if God's going to glorify himself, they've got to do what God expects them to do, and that's to cleanse the land of dead bodies. You read the Jewish law, and you read how there are restrictions about being around dead dead bodies, dead things. Verse 14, they will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, bearing those who were passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. As those who pass through the land pass through and anyone sees a man's bone. So here's a, a, a thigh bone, 
uh, of one of the uh, Gog's army um, soldiers. And they, they'd find this thigh bone and, and he will set up a marker by it until barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. And even the name of the city will be Hamana. And so they will cleanse the land. Do, do you see the repetition? The repeti- cleanse the land, cleanse the land, cleanse the land. God is holy. God is holy and just. You know what's sad today is so many people don't have a clue about the holiness of God. So many people dishonor God by what comes out of their mouths, by what they do with their bodies, by what they look at, by what they listen to, by what their priorities are, they dishonor God. They don't honor the holiness of God of God. So the effort to find and bury the remains of God's army will be organized and thorough. So seven years of burning weapons for fuel and seven months to find dead bodies and to bury them. H.A. Ironside, who was a pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, made this statement. He said, so suddenly will death claim the myriads of those uh, who formed these armies that there will be no opportunity for them to bury their own dead. They can't bury their own dead because they're all dead. Dead people can't bury dead people. The blow will come as it were in a moment. The dead bodies will be strewn everywhere in the valley of Haman Gog. These decayed corpses will poison the very air and would be a source of grievous pestilence to the whole land if steps were not taken almost immediately to properly inter them. Therefore, a great squad of grave diggers will be formed whose business it will be to go through the entire section where Gog's army has been destroyed and bury the bodies in order to cleanse the land. For seven months, this work will continue before the last bodies will have been covered from human sight. Anyone passing through this region beholding bones or corpses will be required to set up a sign or marker in order that the barriers may see it and so inter the body as soon as possible. In this way, the land will be cleansed from its defilement and the air purified. In the meantime, birds and beasts that feed upon carrion will assist in the work of clearing away the rotting corpses. Now, Haman Gog literally means, in the Hebrew, it means the multitude or hordes of Gog. And and Hamona means multitude. That city of Amona means multitude. It's likely that, and this is what Wearsby says, it's likely that this city will be established as a headquarters for the massive operation designed to cleanse the land. Now, it will stand, this whole air, this cemetery, this massive cemetery, this city, Hamona will stand as a continual reminder of the fate of those who oppose God, who stand in resistance against God. Now look at verses 17 to 20. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field, Assemble and come, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You you will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you're glutted and drink blood until you're drunk. 
from my sacrifice, which I've sacrificed for you, you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all the men of war, declares the Lord God. Now, this section that we just read, verses 17 to 20, deals with Gog and his allies and this strange picture of scavenger birds and scavenger beasts gorging themselves with the corpses and the blood of the defeated enemy. Vauder and Hope view this as somewhat of a, a, a reverse sacrifice. Now, you, you know, in Jewish sacrifices, a Jewish family would offer a sacrifice there in the temple. And, and they, some of the sacrifices, they, they could eat part of it, right? But notice this, what these two guys said. Their corpses will be a sacrificial meal that birds and animals will consume. It is a stunning reversal. Instead of human beings consuming the animals of sacrifice, it is the animals who consume the human beings sacrificed for Yahweh's honor. Wow. That's amazing stuff here, folks. This restoration described in Ezekiel 36 to 39 was focused on Israel, but never limited to them. Let me tell you, it's not God's will for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Let's just, let's just clear the air. It's God's will for, for Hamas soldiers to be saved and to be regenerated by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's will for those who are criminals to be saved and set free by the power of the blood of Jesus. It, it is God's will for Muslims to be saved. It is God's will for Hindus to be saved. It is God's will for everybody to be saved. It's, it's God's will. That's the power of the gospel. You'll never convince me ever in a thousand years that God predestined some people to go to hell. There's nowhere in the Bible it teaches that. Nowhere. Nowhere. By God's grace and by the sacrificial death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, God opens the door and says, anybody who wants to come in, come in. But there, there, there are rules. Number one, you got to repent of your sin. Number two, you got to put your faith in Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior. You can't get around those two rules. I don't care where you're born. I don't care what religion you are part of growing up. That is what the way it is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That never changes. Never. You say, but pastor, what about that person born in, in, the, in the jungle and, and they've never heard the gospel? Well, let me tell you this. There's only one way for them to be saved, and that's believe in Jesus and repent of their sin. That's why we've been given the task of carrying the gospel to the world. Jesus assigned us that task. Now, look at verses 21 to 24. I told you earlier that, that there, there's just a strong emphasis in this chapter 39 on the glory of God, on the majesty of God, on God wanting his name to be known among the nations and wanting his name to be known among the Jews and for them to never profane his name again. Look, look at verse 21, 24. And I will set my glory among the nations. And all the nations, all the nations will see my judgment, which I've executed, and my hand, which I've laid on them. You know what's going to happen in the war of Gog and Magog? The whole world is going to be uh, privy to, the, to what God has done, how God has supernaturally intervened against a massive army that was about to wipe out the Jewish people. 
I'll tell you what, if you want to get a clear understanding of the faithfulness of God, just look at the fact that the Jewish people are still around. Since their inception, people have wanted to annihilate them. I read in my, in my study, and, and this just, it blows my mind. Martin Luther, the great reformer, John Calvin, the great reformer, they were blatant anti-Semites. Blatant. I'm, I'm telling you folks, if they were alive today saying what they said back in the, in the 1500s or whenever it was, I'm telling you, the, 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 the Jewish people would be up in arms against them. We would be up in arms against them. They would be on the other side. They would be, they would be more with AOC than they are with us uh, about this, uh, about the matter of Israel. You, you ought to look that up. You ought to Google that sometime. What, what Martin Luther and Calvin believed about the Jewish people. You, you know what Luther said? He said, we ought to go to every Jewish synagogue and burn it down. That's what he said. Now, I'm telling you what, he got the gospel right. And, you know, here's what we've got to understand. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. But I can tell you one thing we can't be off on. We can't be off on the gospel. Not, not one iota. We got to have the gospel nailed down in our heart and never deviate from the gospel. I can't imagine what, what it was like for Luther and Calvin when they got to heaven. And, and the Lord corrected them. Can you imagine? But you know what? He may do some correcting to us too. So, Ezekiel 39, 21, 24. I got 15 minutes. I'm doing good. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the judgment which I've executed and my hand which I've laid on them. And the, look at this. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Now, let me ask you, does Israel know that today? Do this. The vast majority of Jews do not know that today. They don't. I'm telling you that most Jewish people in Israel are practical atheists. Now look at this, verse 23. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity. You know what the nations think about the reason Jews went into exile and, and, were, and suffered throughout the years, Bab Babylon and Assyria and different, different nations. You know why? They think that God was not strong enough, that God is a localized God, that he's just a God for the Jews, and there are gods of other nations that are more powerful than God. That's what the nations think. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile. Why? Why? What does it say? For their iniquity. Because they acted treacherously against me, that's God, and I hid my face from them, so I gave them into the hand of their adversary. Who gave them into the hand of their adversary? God did. Who rescued them from Babylon? God did. The sovereignty of God. And I gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and all of them fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I dealt with them and I hid my face from them. Oh, I pray that God will never hide his face from me. I pray he will never hide his face from you. Listen, the fact is God is holy. God's holy. 
And if we decide that we're not going to honor God as holy, if we're going to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, and we're going to live in rebellion against God, I'll tell you, he will discipline us. And you know why he will discipline us? Because he loves us. Why? You're like me. My, my kids are grown now. But I remember when I had to discipline the kids, I disciplined them because I loved them. I, I didn't want them to stick that fork in, in a socket. I, I didn't want them to get shocked. So I disciplined them. I, I didn't want them to mess with the TV. That's when you had to get up and go to a TV and do, change channels. I, I didn't want them to do that. And, and we disciplined them. Now, let me tell you something. That's why God disciplines us. Hey, let me ask you a question. Can you recall a time in your life when you veered away from God and you began to do things your way and God disciplined you? Do you remember that? Can I tell you this? He did that because he loves you. Hebrews chapter 5 talks about that. He disciplines us because he loves us. And, and get this, it says in Hebrews chapter 5, he disciplines us because he wants us to be holy. Do you realize that the Bible says this comes straight from God? God wants us to be holy as he is holy. He wants us to have holy thoughts. He, want, he wants holy words to come out of our mouth. I tell you, I've never in my life seen such filthiness in people's mouths. God is holy. And when he disciplines us, he does it for his glory. That we will honor him and love him. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And this would bring Israel into a new relationship with God. Let, let me give you some scripture. Now, there, there are those, and we've talked about this as we've gone through this study. There are those who believe that the church has replaced Israel. And God has written Israel off and wiped his hands of Israel and he has no use for the nation of Israel ever again. That's called replacement theology. And it is a bogus, bogus theology. I hope none of you ever buy into that. God's not through with Israel. The very fact that we're studying something that, that was written that many years ago, and it's about the nation of Israel proves that God is not through with Israel. Why would he intervene and save them there against this, this massive army that's come to wipe them off the face of the planet and drive them into the Mediterranean Sea? Look at Zechariah 12, 10. I will pour out on the house of David. It's an Old Testament prophet. I will pour out on the house of David, that's Israel, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, notice it, the spirit of grace, not law, grace, and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now, who did they pierce? Jesus. They pierced Jesus. So that they will look on me, Jesus, whom they pierce, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Look at Zechariah 13.1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and impurity, a fountain of grace. And Israel will repent, and they will believe in their Messiah. It's going to happen. Look at Romans 11, 25 to 32. I know it's an extended passage, but it's worthy of us reading it. 
Paul wrote, for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so notice verse 26, look at it. So all Israel will be saved. The nation of Israel will be saved in the last day, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, how in the world can you read replacement theology into that? God's not through with Israel. Verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Let me tell you, God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham. And God keeps his word. If, there's, if you ever, ever, ever needed to see an illustration of the faithfulness of God, look at Israel. Verse 30, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have become, uh, but, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also, the Jews also now, have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Look at Revelation 1, 7. Behold, he's coming. And he's coming, folks. Jesus is coming. I'm not on the planning committee. I'm on the welcoming committee, right? Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Look at this. Look at it. Don't miss it. Even those who what? Who pierced him? Who pierced him? The Romans and the Jews, right? All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Now look at verses uh, 23 and 24 again. Look, look, look back at it. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously, treacherously against me. And I hid my face from them, so I gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and all of them fell by the sword according to their uncleanness and according to their transgression. I dealt with them, and I hid my face from them. But the day is coming. I'm telling you, the day is coming. As sure as I'm standing on this platform today, the day is coming when they will see their Messiah and they will believe in him. Now, can I explain all that? No. If you think I can explain all the, the, the nitty-gritty details, I can't. I'm flying around. Maybe sometime I dip down to 15,000 feet. But most of the time in the prophetic realm, I need to probably stay up around 20 to 30,000 feet. Look at Ezekiel 39, 25 to 29, the last section here. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob. Who's Jacob? That's Israel. And have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetrated against me when they live securely. Look at this. When they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. Wow. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of the many nations. And they will know that I am the Lord their God 
because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again into their own land and I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer for I have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. F.B. Meyer made this statement. He said, we must never overlook the literal significance of this promise. All Israel insists the apostle of, of the Gentiles, that's Paul, who never lost his love for his own people shall be saved. The blindness which has happened to them is only till the fullness of the Gentile contingent to the one church has been brought in. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, in that day of restoration, dwelling securely in their own land, they would still bear their shame. That is to say, repentance for past failure would be profound even in the day of restoration. By that attitude of mind, Jehovah would be sanctified among them in the sight of the nations, but they would have the infinite healing of his unveiled face and the abiding energy of his outpoured spirit. With God's spirit poured out upon Israel, they would have a relationship with God based upon grace, not law. Grace, not law. Not their own work and their own merits, but the work and merit of their Messiah who died on the cross for their sins, just like he died on the cross for our sins and would raise from the dead for their justification so they could have eternal life just like we can. I tell you that day, day's coming. The day is coming when the war of Gog and Magog will break out and God is going to demonstrate his power and his glory and the whole world will see it. Now, I can't tell you when it's going to happen, but I can tell you it's going to happen. Just keep your eyes on Israel. If I could say one thing to you in closing, if you want to stay prophetically in tune, keep your eyes on Israel. Keep looking at what's happening over there, okay? Because what's happening over there gives us a lot of understanding about where we are prophetically. Okay? Hey, I've really enjoyed this time with you. Now, we're going to, we're going to take some time off. We're go the next time we meet will be January the 10th. And I I'm praying about what I'm going to teach I'll tell you what I'm thinking about, and, and I'm not sure, so don't hold me to this. I'm thinking about teaching verse by verse through Hebrews. I've never taught verse by verse through Hebrews. And that is a great book. There's so many jewels in the book of Hebrews. So you pray for me that I'll know exactly what I need to teach and, and that... Um, that, that we'll meet together and just have a great time in the Word, just like we've been having, okay? I, I pray that all of you will have a Merry Christmas. You'll enjoy your family. There won't be any family feuds or anything. Everything will go smooth as, as silk, and, and you'll have a great time with your family and enjoy each and, But most of all, let's make sure that we honor the King. Amen. He's coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the men and women in this room, those watching by live stream. And Lord, we have tackled a massive prophetic project in, in, in this study in Ezekiel. And I just pray, Lord, that we've honored you and that, that we've glorified you and you've made some deposits in our hearts that will bear a lot of fruit in the future. Lord, help us to, 
Help us to understand the times. Help us to know what to do and to understand prophetically what's happening, Lord. Well, we love you and you tell us to be ready. You tell us to always be ready. And I pray, Lord, that we would look forward to your coming and that we would be ready, that we would have our head on a swivel every single day, just ready for you to come. And I pray, Lord, that when you come, that you will find us actively engaged in service to you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. God bless you.